You're listening to the sermon podcast of Galveston Bible Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit galvestonbible.org. But mostly, from wherever you're listening, we hope that the Lord ministers to you through this week's message. On the book of Ephesians, we will be in this book for the foreseeable future, maybe until Jesus comes back, I'm not sure. Um, If you have ever read this book, you would realize that this book is filled with treasures. And what I really want us to do is I don't want us to rush through this book. I want us to savor every single word that we're going to be looking at um, over the next couple of weeks, because this is a tremendous book. Today, we're just going to uh, start with an introduction. Um, We're going to introduce the the, uh, series. uh, We're going to talk about the author today. We're going to talk about the setting of the book. We're going to look at the general outline of the book and then the purpose for which it was written and some of the themes. And this sermon is really just to whet your appetite uh, about what we're going to cover a lot of stuff today. We're just going to touch on it and we're going to be going into more detail as the weeks uh, progress. And I'm just really excited about this. Uh, Next week we'll start to get into the meat of it. If you've been following us at all on uh, Facebook or if you get the weekly emails, what I'm encouraging you to do is actually to study this book along with me. Uh, Rather than just come and hear on Sunday mornings, which is fine, I'm inviting you to actually study the book, to observe the text so that when you come on a Sunday, you're like, this is what I looked at this week. This is what I discovered this week. And so I've been giving you a couple of little guidelines uh, via email and then a couple of videos that I have posted. Uh, and so one of the things that I've asked you to do is, uh, if you did look at those videos or look at the emails, is to identify key or repeated words or phrases that appear in this book. Because when an author keeps saying the same thing over and over again, using the same word or the same phrase, that is something that is important. That needs to, you need to note that. I also asked you to look for actions of God and actions of man. What is God doing in this book? What are we doing in this book? Because it will open up to you to say, wow, look at what God has done for us. And then I also asked you to uh, look at what are known as indicative statements and imperative statements. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, I haven't had English in a very long time. Please explain that. Let me tell you, I am not an expert in English. Uh, but when I started to have to study e- uh, Hebrew and Greek uh, in seminary, I had to learn English all over again. What is an adjective? What is an imperative statement? What is an interrogative statement? And all those things. Indicative statement is simply a statement of facts, okay? A statement of fact, and an imperative statement is a command. We'll get more into that as we move along. But there's other, other things that I'm asking you to do all aimed at helping you to understand this book for yourself so that when you come on a Sunday morning, you're like, oh, this is what I studied this week. And I guarantee it will bless you and you will get more out of it. Also along the way, I'm going to give you some suggested Bible resources via email and in the uh, videos as well. So without further ado, let's dive into this book. We're just going to look at the first two verses uh, today, and there's actually a lot in here. Here's what it says, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. This is the very word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
This ends the reading of God's word. Uh, We cannot understand this unless the Holy Spirit shows up. And so let's just invite him to speak uh, through me right now. Lord, we come to you right now. We thank you for this amazing book filled with just such awesome treasures about all that you have done for us. I pray that you would open it up to us right now. Open it up to me. I pray that we would get this. We need to get this. If we are to survive and flourish in this life, we need to get the truths that are in this book. And so I pray that you would open them up to us today. Show us who you are. Show us who we are. Show us what you require of us. And we just pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So Paul begins the book by identifying himself as the author. Now, usually we just skim past that, but I think it's important to understand who this author is, because the more you know about the life of the Apostle Paul, the more the things that he writes will come out to you and say, ah, that's why he's talking about these things. And so, in order to discover who Paul is, we're going to do a little bit of page turning today, and I'm going to ask you to follow along with me as best you can. The first passage that we're going to look at is in Philippians chapter 3. So if you're in Ephesians, if you go to the next book, Philippians, maybe you have to turn a page or two, you will be in uh, Philippians, and it's chapter 3 is what we're going to be looking at. Philippians chapter 3, and this is Paul describing his former life before he came to Christ. And he gives a pretty impressive uh, resume Beginning in verse 5, it's actually the whole chapter, but beginning in verse 5, he says this, Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. We'll stop there. Paul was 100% Jewish and he was proud of it. Not only was he Jewish, but he was a member of the strictest uh, sect in the Jewish religion, the Pharisees. The Pharisees knew the law. The Pharisees judged everyone that they came into contact by the law. And the Pharisees had the false notion that they actually kept the law. The Pharisees, if you read the New Testament, the Gospels, you will see that the Pharisees hated Jesus. And they hated his followers. Paul hated the followers of Jesus. And if you read the first uh, couple chapters of the book of Acts, you will see that Paul persecuted the church. Paul was in favor of anyone who was killing Christians. Paul got letters so that he could go to the various towns to find Christians and to kill them. Paul was a true Pharisee. Moving on, I want you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. If you were in Ephesians, you went to Philippians, go before Ephesians now. You have Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. Here Paul further explains his past life and then his life when Jesus confronted him and changed his life forever, calling him into the ministry. Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 11, he says this, For I would have you know, brothers... That the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner 
of life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Paul, who was the church's greatest enemy, encountered Christ and became the church's greatest missionary, the church's greatest advocate. God had a special mission that he called Paul to even before Paul was born. But in the fullness of time, he revealed that to him. And that mission, as we will see as we go through the book of Ephesians, was to go to the nations, the Gentile nations who the Jews absolutely hated. Paul was sent to go to them. And Paul would spend the rest of his life proclaiming the word of God among the nations. And all along, he would be persecuted. He would be driven out of cities. He would be stoned. He would be put in prison and eventually he would lose his life for the cause of Christ. All for the purpose of getting out the life-saving message of Jesus, getting that message out to everyone. If you could turn back to Philippians chapter 3, just giving you a little bit of practice in finding stuff today. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, we'll see what Paul thought of his former life as compared to his new life in Christ. Beginning in verse 7 of Philippians chapter 3, he says this. Remember, he gave that uh, amazing resume, a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? A Pharisee, zealous. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul considered everything that he had religiously worked for as dung, as manure, as waste. Paul had tried to acquire God's favor by keeping all of God's laws and realized when he encountered Jesus that he could never keep all of God's laws. And after he met Christ, he realized that he didn't have to try to gain God's favor because he already had God's favor because of what, had Jesus, what Jesus had done for him. And now because Paul believed in Jesus, Jesus' perfect life 
Jesus' God-favor-gaining life was given to Paul. Jesus came to this world. He didn't just come to die for us. He came to live the life that we could not live. Jesus never lied. He never lusted. He was never selfish. Jesus did everything that he was required to do, everything that the law of God required to do, and he did that for us. And this life was now given to Paul. And Paul was considered, because of that, Paul was considered to be perfectly righteous in the eyes of God. Did this mean that Paul never sinned again? That as soon as he met Jesus, he never lied, never, never was selfish again? No. Paul would continue to sin. It only meant this, that all of Paul's sins, past, present, and future, were all forgiven. They were all taken away as if they never happened at all. And Jesus' perfect righteousness was given to him. Paul's positional standing before God was perfectly righteous. When God looked at Paul, he saw perfect righteousness because he wasn't seeing Paul's life. He was seeing the life of Jesus, his son, applied to Paul, covering all of Paul's sin. His position before God was as if he had never sinned at all. And so what was Paul's response to this? What was Paul's response to this amazing truth that he had been forgiven for every vile sin that he ever committed? That he had a right standing with God and access to the presence of God. What was his response? Well, in gratitude, Paul strove his whole life to get his practice, his daily living, to match his position. He was positionally perfect before God, and now he actually wanted to be perfect. He wanted to be righteous. He didn't want to be just declared righteous. He wanted to live a righteous life. Why? Because that's what was pleasing and honoring to God. Jesus had given his life for Paul, and now Paul wanted to give his life for Jesus. But Paul knew that he could not do this. He could not live perfectly. Um, He would continue to sin just like all of us. And we see this truth. If you would turn over with me to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. Uh, This comes before Galatians. Then you got 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, and then Romans. Romans chapter 7. This is Paul describing his current life. And as I read this, tell me if you can't see yourself in this passage. Because every time I read this passage, I'm like, Paul struggled with the exact same sins that I struggle with. Because it just sounds like my heart's cry every day. He says this, Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Okay, let's stop there. Yeah, right? This is our life. What's his conclusion? In verse 24, comes in the form of a statement and a question. He says this, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Like, I'm hopeless 
right? This is crazy. I am trying to please God, and I keep sinning over and over again. Oh, wretched man, who will deliver me from the body of this death? The answer comes in verse 25. He says this, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Isn't that awesome? The answer is Jesus. Jesus. And then the results are found in the next chapter, Romans chapter 8. What's the result of what Jesus has done for me? Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. And I wish we had time to go through this, but here's what he says. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit the righteous requirements of the law have been fulfilled in us because jesus lived them out for us we were required to live perfectly. Do you realize that? I don't think we get that. You and I are required to live a perfect life from the moment that we are born to the day that we die. No sins whatsoever, no lies, no selfishness, nothing like that at all. That is what you are required to do if you ever want to see God. None of us can do that. There is no chance that any of us could ever do that. But the gospel is that Jesus did. Jesus perfectly fulfilled all of the requirements of the law of God, and he did it for us. You've heard me say this before. This wasn't on Jesus' bucket list. Hey, I wonder what it's like to be a human. You know, let me try that out. No, he came because we couldn't do it. And he came to live the life that you and I could not live. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And because Jesus is living the perfect life that Paul was required to live, Paul didn't have to try to earn God's favor anymore because he already had it. He already had it. <clears throat> and, so, and so now the good works that Paul would do were not done trying to gain God's favor. They were done out of a deep gratitude for what God had done for him. Prior to Jesus, Paul, like the rest of us, had made a mess of his life. He messed it up, doing whatever he wanted, and he did not want to do that anymore. He did not want to live for himself anymore because he was messing his life up. And so what he did is he gave his life to Jesus. He gave his life to the only one who could make something out of the mess of his life. As a result, what Paul did is he relinquished <clears throat> all the control of his life. In Romans chapter 12, he said he urges them to present their bodies as a living sacrifice. And this is what Paul did. He presented his body as a living sacrifice. He said this in a sense, God, you need to take control of my eyes because if I maintain control of them, I will look at things that I should not look at. God, you need to take control of my hands because if I maintain control of my hands, I will, I will do things with my hands that are dishonoring to you. I will mess it up. God, you need to take control of my feet because if I have control of my feet, they will, I will, they will take me to places that I know that I should not go. And God, you have to take control of my mouth 
Because if I have control in my mouth, I will use it for evil. I will use it to tear down people. God, you need to take control of my entire body or I will mess it up again. And that's what Paul did. He presented his body as a living sacrifice. And people, this is what I want to say. This is what the book of Ephesians is all about. And this is why I'm so excited to look into this book. And so let's get into it. As I read the opening verses, I see in this, I don't want to read something into this text that's not there, but I see in the first verse an outline to the entire book. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. I'm looking at the phrase where he says this, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Remember I talked about our position. Paul's position before God was that he was perfectly righteous. Our position is seen in the fact that we are called saints. Saints. Do you realize today that if you are a Christian, that you are a saint? Right? You are a saint. You don't have to be canonized by the Catholic Church. You are a saint. I could refer to you right? As Saint Andrew or Saint Tim or whatever. You could refer to me as Saint Jason. Please don't do that. I don't want that. But anyway, but I am perfectly righteous. I am a saint positionally before God. You are a saint. You are a holy one. That's what it means. This is not just reserved for Paul and Peter and John. No, it's reserved for you as well. You are a saint positionally. You are perfectly holy in the eyes of God because of what Jesus has done. So we see that we are saints, but he also addresses our practice in that first verse as well. And he says, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. You are perfectly righteous and you are also acting in a way that reflects what God has done, his perfect standard. Not only were they positionally holy before God, they were also living in a way that expressed obedience to his word. Oh, they didn't do it perfectly. But what they were striving to do is they were striving to get their practice, their day-to-day living, to match their position, which was perfect. This is how God views me. This is how I want to be. I'm right here, but this is how I want to be. I want to be righteous. And if you look at this book of Ephesians, this letter to the Ephesians, you will see that this letter is divided evenly right down the middle between our position in Christ and our practice. Our position, who we are, and what we are to do. Chapters 1 through 3 talk about our position or our standing before God. And then chapters 4 through 6 talk about our practice, how we are to live. In other words, Chapters 1 through 3 say, you are holy. And chapters 4 through 6 say, be holy. You are holy. Be holy. In preparation for today's sermon, once again, I asked you uh, to look at uh, what are known as indicative statements and imperative statements. Um, Indicative statements are statements of fact, such as, I am wearing a blue shirt. That is a statement of fact. An imperative statement would be, wear a blue shirt. I am commanding you to do that. That is an imperative. It is imperative that you do that. If you were to mark the indicative statements and the imperative statements, what you would see is this. In the first three chapters, you do not get a single imperative statement. You do not get a single command. Now, you might have read and you came across uh, Ephesians 2.11 where it says, remember 
but it immediately goes into a statement of fact. Remember that you were like this. He's not telling them to do anything. He's saying this is how you were. There's not a single imperative statement in the first three chapters. But then when he gets to chapter four, we see command after command after command. We see rapid fire imperative statements. I want you to look at them with me for a moment. Okay? Beginning in chapter 4, verse 1. I want you to see this for yourself. Okay? Chapter 4, verse 1, he says this. Once again, not a single command in the first three chapters. And then he says this. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you've been called. That's his first command. Walk in a way that is worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Skipping down to verse 17, chapter 4, verse 17. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Verse 22, to put off your old self. Verse 23, be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new self. Verse 25, speak the truth. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. All commands. Verse 27, give no opportunity for the devil. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Verse 32, be kind to one another. Going into verse 5, therefore be imitators of God. Verse 2 of chapter 5, walk in love. Verse 3, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. Verse 4, let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking. Skipping down to verse 22 of chapter 5, wives, submit to your own husbands. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Chapter 6, verse 1, children, obey your parents. Verse 5 of chapter 6, bondservants, obey your earthly masters. Verse 9, masters, do the same. To them and stop and give up your threatening. Verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. And then verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. You have command after command after command in chapters 4 through 6 and not a single command in, verses, in chapters 1 through 3. Why is that important? I'm going to tell you why it's important and you need to listen because this will resolve a world of problems in your life if you get this if you understand why paul sets up his letter the way that he does and here it is before he ever gives them a single command he gives them a huge dose of identity before he asks them to do anything he tells them who they are and this is important because we do in order to be we do things in order to get a name right for example we study hard so that people will label us as smart or intelligent we don't want to be dumb so we study hard because we're trying to impress others we want people to think highly of us we may excel in athletics because we want people to label us as an athlete Oh, this, this guy or this girl, they are strong, they are talented, they are gifted. There's no one who has ever played like them. We do in order to be. Or we climb the corporate ladder 
so that people will say, look at what a success this person is. This person used to be here. They got promoted and they got promoted again. And now they're the vice president. They are a success and we want people to notice that. Look at what I've done. <clears throat> I was nothing before, but now I'm important. We work out, right? Or we exercise so that we can be attractive or be strong. We obey maybe our parents or someone else in hopes that they will love us or accept us. We work to get our identity. We want to justify our existence. We want to justify our place in this earth. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Chariots of Fire. It's an older movie. It's about the 1924 Olympic Games. The main character is this guy named uh, Eric Liddell, who is a runner. And this, Eric Liddell is a Christian, um, and he is secure in his faith. He's so secure in his faith that when an event comes up, an important event comes up on a Sunday in the Olympics, where he was a shoo-in to get the gold medal, he did not run in it because he did not want to violate the commandment to, um, uh, to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. So he refused to run in it, and it didn't destroy him at all. There's another character in, uh, the, in this movie, which is actual life uh, story, uh, by the name of Harold Abrams, who is not a Christian and is not secure. And he's a sprinter. And there's a part in the movie where he says this, He's talking to someone, and he says, I will raise my eyes, and I will look down that corridor. Four feet wide, with only ten seconds to justify my entire existence. Will I do it? You see that? If I come in second, my whole life is meaningless. I can't do that. Everything is in what I do right now. My identity is wrapped up in being a runner. In terms of God, many may obey God, many may follow his commands so that God will love them, right? Maybe that's where you are today. You, you see God and you say, God, I, I've obeyed today. I've been good today. I haven't lusted. I haven't, I haven't lied today. I've been, I've been good uh, uh, to people Will you love me? Now will you accept me? Am I, am I worthy to be called your son or your daughter? I've been good. I've been good. Certainly you'll love me now. Certainly I'm lovely. I'm lovable. Pastor Tim Keller, speaking to this regard, said this, quote, There is a great difference between the understanding that God accepts us because of our efforts and the understanding that God accepts us because of what Jesus has done. Religion operates on the principle, I obey, therefore I am accepted by God. But the operating principle of the gospel is, I am accepted by God through what Christ has done, therefore I obey. Christ has accepted me, that's why I obey. I'm not trying to gain God's favor, I already have it. And therefore, this is the message of Ephesians. Before he gives a single command, do this, do that, he says, Sit down, let me tell you who you are. Let me tell you who you are. Obedience flows out of identity. 
I want you to turn with me back to Ephesians chapter 1. Once again, in the video that I posted, um, I asked you to identify and mark any repeated words or phrases. There is one particular phrase that you need to mark, if you haven't already, that you need to take note of. And it appears in a huge concentration in chapters 1 through 3, which is the indicative statements, the statements of fact. And it is the, state, it is the phrase, in Christ, or in him. In Christ, it is repeated several times. And I want you to look at me. I'm just going to look at the first part of chapter 1. We're not going to look through uh, chapters 1 through 3. Just the first part of chapter 1. We saw that it was already in the first verse. Those were in Christ. And then verse 3, he says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Skipping down to verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. Verse 10, as a plan to the fullness of the times to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined. Verse 12, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And then finally in verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And he goes on and on in him, in Christ, in the beloved, over and over again. Do you see what Paul is trying to get you to understand? He's trying to get you to understand that you are, your identity is in Christ. You are in Christ. You are identified with Christ. Your identity has been swallowed up in Christ. Your name, his name is given to you. This is such a great and important truth. Now, I know that there are people in here um, uh, who are just happy naturally. Nothing can deter them. They're always, they always have a smile on their face. But most of the people that I've come across struggle day to day. They struggle with anxiety. They struggle with depression. They struggle with feelings of failure. They struggle with, with the, the reality that they never be, they're never able to measure up. They're constantly comparing themselves to others and seeing that they fail. They don't measure up. Here's the truth. You don't measure up. You never have measured up and you never will measure up. But the hope of the gospel is this that Jesus has measured up, and he has measured up for you. He knew, we read this earlier, that he knows that we're but dust, right? He knows that we fail all the time. He knows that we couldn't keep it. He gave us that law, and he knew we couldn't keep it. And he said, but I'm coming, and I will keep it. Christ measured up for us. He succeeded in every area where we fail, and that's exactly what he came to do. He came to live the life that you and I could not live. And he has already justified your existence. Do you realize that? You're thinking, do I, am I worthy 
of being in this life? Does my life have any meaning? And Jesus comes and stretches out his arms and says, you're worth dying for. I consider you worthy of bringing into my family, sitting at my table, calling me your brother, calling my father your father. He's already justified your existence. We don't have to worry about what other people think of us because here's the bottom line. Jesus loves you. Who cares what anyone else thinks of you, right? Jesus loves you. Well, I think you're a jerk. Well, Jesus doesn't, right? I think you're a failure. Well, Jesus doesn't. Jesus has measured up where you and I could never measure up. By myself, I'm a failure. But in Christ, I'm unstoppable. And I'm able to do the impossible. And this is what we're going to talk about in the weeks to come as we look at this book. This truth that we're identified with Christ is summed up in one verse in Galatians chapter 2.20. You don't have to look there. Paul says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I've lost my identity. It's in Christ now. You and I died to our old way of life. When you become a Christian, when you put your faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to live in you. The Holy Spirit comes uh, and he makes residence in you and he makes you completely new. We see this truth in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. He says this, If anyone be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We now have a new identity. We are identified with Christ. And there is no greater privilege than this. Our old, guilty, shameful name, which is tarnished by sin, is gone. And now we have a new name. We are Christians. We are Christ followers. We are identified with Christ. You belong to Jesus. And Jesus belongs to you. What a wonderful truth. So wonderful. So wonderful that you and I cannot, must not miss this. We must not miss this. Satan will try to get you to miss this. If you were to look at the end of the book of Ephesians chapter 6, you would see that we are in a spiritual warfare. That we're told to put on the armor of God because we're wrestling against these unseen forces. Satan and his demons are here right now. They're telling you that what I am saying is garbage. They're telling you that what I am saying does not apply to you. Certainly it applies to this person, but not you. If he knew who you were, you know that he's not talking about you. You know that you failed too much. There's no way that God loves you. There's no way that God could forgive you for what you did last week. There's no way that God could forgive you. This does not apply to you. You might as well tune out. There's no hope for you. That's what Satan wants to do. And he knows that if he can do that, then he can get you to live a weak, spiritually powerless life. Defeated every single day. But if we realize what it means to be in Christ, then we will have a new confidence, a new power to overcome anything in this life. 
power to overcome sin in our lives, power to overcome that cowardice when we're afraid to say something at work about Christ or in our schools about Christ or in our neighborhoods about Christ. He'll give you the power to overcome that, the power to overcome depression, those feelings of worthlessness and failure, and the power on the positive side to make a huge and lasting difference in this world, which will have eternal ramifications. Getting this point is so important. I want you to notice the flow of this, because as Paul is talking about who they are in Christ, as he's talking about their identity, he stops twice in the first three chapters and breaks out into prayer. And his prayer are that they would get this. He spends several verses talking about, this is what God has done for you. This is what God has done for you. And what you need to notice about that, going into grammar again, is those are passive verbs. You are being acted upon. This is not, you got your act together and now this is what God's doing. If you look at Ephesians chapter 2, you are dead, right? A dead person can't do anything. And what happens is that God makes you alive. This is what God is doing and you have to get this. And so Paul, as he's explaining these truths, he stops in the middle and he says this. If, you, if you're in Ephesians, turn to chapter 1, verse 15. He, sa- he says this, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Why? So that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? This is what I'm praying. I'm praying that you get this. And then if that's not enough, At the end of chapter 3, he breaks into another prayer after he's talked about more truths. Beginning in verse 14, he says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpa- that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Easy to understand. Get it. That's what he's saying. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. It's too important. And what you might need to do is you might need this afternoon or sometime this week, you might just need to sit with this book and read it over and over again and say, is this true of me? Is this true of me? Really? And meditate on those things. As mentioned before, many of us live in the danger of living defeated lives, not realizing what Christ has done for us, not realizing the the power and the resources that are available to us. There's a story of a woman who lived in the late 1800s and early 1900s by the name of Hetty Green. And this lady appeared to have a miserable existence. Um, It was reported that she mostly lived on a diet of cold oatmeal because she didn't want to use the money that it took to heat it up. 
One time her son got an infection in his leg and she searched all over the town for days trying to find a free clinic to treat her son. And by the time she did find a clinic, it was too late. The infection was so severe that his leg had to be amputated. But the sad part of the story is that when she died a few years later in 1916, her estate was estimated at over $100 million. $100 million. The whole time she was filthy rich. She could have afforded the finest foods. She could have afforded the best medical care and it wouldn't, wouldn't have even dented her estate, her bank account. And yet she lived as if she had absolutely nothing. Spiritual, spiritually speaking, this is how many of us live. We have amazing, unlimited, heavenly resources and yet we never tap into them. We live like spiritual paupers. Our marriages suffer because we don't tap into the abundant resources that are available in Christ. Our, uh, we accept defeat as parents for the same reasons. We give in to sin because we don't feel like we have the power to overcome it. We're ashamed to speak for Christ to our neighbors or our workplaces or our places, uh, 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 the schools that we go to, all because we don't understand the wealth of resources that are available to us in Christ. The book of Ephesians gives us a glimpse into our spiritual bank account, if you will. Like, you know, when you pull it up on the phone, it's like you have $25.60, right? This is, you have unlimited resources. You will never exhaust them. It reveals all the sources that are the resources that are available to us to do beyond what we could ever imagine. This is the book that we are embarking on today. Over the next several months, it tells us all that is ours in Christ Jesus. And I don't use that word lightly, all. I want you to do one final word search with me as we close, and we will close uh, after this. And it all just comes from chapter 1. Um, this is not the only place where the word all or every is mentioned, but I want you to hear how Paul uses this. Once again, beginning in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 8. In all wisdom and insight. Verse 10 to unite all things in him. Verse 11, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Skipping down to verse 20 and 21, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in the age to come in verse 22 and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all what do you get in christ all everything right it's not like it's going to give you a little bit just a few no all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places what is Christ over? Everything, right? 
nothing is there's nothing that Christ is not over there's nothing that Christ does not own and if you are in Christ then what Christ owns you own and what is that all it's everything that's what you and I are going to be looking at are you ready to see all that is ours in Christ Jesus I hope so I'm excited about this journey that we're going to be on together. I'm excited to see how God is going to work in our lives as we study this book and as we apply it. I'm excited to see that even as the enemy attacks us, that we will overcome because we are in Christ. So what I want you to do is this week, sit with this book. Read this book. Read Ephesians over and over again meditate on it. You've heard me say this before. Marinate in it until its truths start to soak into you and become a part of you and you get it. Write down any questions you may have. Write down any truths that you need to meditate on. And then next week we will begin with verse 3 as we start to unpack all that is ours in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book. Lord, we stand. There's no way that we can comprehend everything that is in this book, but I pray that you would open up our minds. I pray, God, that you would transform us, Lord. I pray that over the next couple of weeks and months, even as the enemy attacks, Lord, that we will see a change in our own lives, in our personal lives, and in the life of this church, Lord. And I pray that you would blow us away by these truths, Lord. Please help us to get these things. Help us to constantly be praying those prayers in Ephesians 1 and 3. Give us comprehension. Give us the ability to understand them because we need them. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.